Welcome to Biographicon. Welcome to Biographicon, the series that casts new light on little-known figures from the 18th century north. In this episode, we travel to Swalwell in Gateshead to hear about William Shield, a prolific composer perhaps best known for his comic opera Rosina, a retelling of the biblical story of Ruth set in the north of England. And how long were you in this episode, I'm joined by musicologist Dr. Amelie Addison. So welcome, Amelie, and thank you for joining us on Biographicon. So I know you've been researching William Shield for many years now, and you think he's someone people should know more about. In a nutshell, why? William Shield was a really highly skilled musician. As a composer, his style's really appealing it's very distinctive because it was shaped by musical traditions in in this region where he grew up but he also was influenced by a a range of other historical and and international musical styles he was very widely respected in his own lifetime but his music's largely been forgotten that's not because it isn't interesting or, or good music it's more to do with factors like physical copies of the scores were lost in, in fires. I think his, his life story and his compositions can really enrich our, our knowledge of cultural history. So how different people from different social backgrounds engaged with music and theatre, how musicians used the equivalent of social networking and crowdfunding to build up their careers, and how popular culture was influenced by political and, and global events that were happening. So can people hear William Shields' music today? If they come to Tyneside, then yes. There are local attempts to, to bring Shields' music back into the public ear, I guess. But there, there's very few recordings. There's a couple of clips on YouTube of, of historical performances so you can hear the odd bit here and there. So tell us a little bit about where William Shield was from and what led him to become a musician in the first place. Shield was born in Swarwell which is another village just a couple of miles down the hill from us. This church St Mary's Wickham was the parish church for Wickham and Swarwell at that time. Uh, So Shield's parents were married here and he was baptised here uh, in 1748. At that time, uh, it was the site of a huge ironworks, um, the Crowley Ironworks, which supplied anchors and and chain cable for Royal Navy ships and also, unfortunately, implements and tools that were used in, in the transatlantic slave trade. We know that his father was a very busy and respected uh, music teacher, so he would have taught singing, probably keyboard and stringed instruments as well. And in in the extended family, there were several stonemasons and iron workers and, and domestic servants, so a mixture. When William was about five or six, the family moved to South Shields, and just a few years after that, his father died um, when he was about 10. He's believed to have been sent out to work as an apprentice or, or possibly a servant for a local boat builder, but he was able to still keep up his, his musical skills. 
And sometime in the late 1760s, he began performing with a theatre company that toured around the northeast. So they went between North Shields, Durham, Sunderland, Teesside and, and North Yorkshire. That was run by Mr Bates. So visitors to an 18th century theatre would find it a very musical affair, wouldn't they? One of the reasons for that is that in 1737 there was an Act of Parliament which decreed that unless a theatre had a special royal licence, which most provincial theatres didn't until late in the century, they weren't allowed to present purely spoken drama, a, a straight play, as we might describe it. So they had to devise entertainments that included music, so singing, dance, mime. So without a musician composing songs and performing the accompaniments, the theatre companies would, would not have been able to perform at all. That meant that most touring actors would be competent singers and musicians like Shield had a really important role. It actually took a lot of skill to showcase the talents of the singers effectively and use instrumental effects to highlight scene setting and characterisation and, and different action that was happening on the stage and, and he was extremely good at that. The more I've looked at his scores, the more I realise how, how cleverly he uses the musical elements to underline uh, satire and humour, for example. Um, but yeah, the music was really central. And he got good training, didn't he? Because he was setting the work of the pastoral poet John Cunningham to music at that early stage. Yeah, Cunningham was a, a poet and actor who was attached to the same theatre company as Shield. And it was quite common at that time. There were others in the northeast as well who acted and wrote uh, for the theatre companies. Shield had begun setting their work to music very early in his career. So the, the first publication that he released uh, was in around 1775. It's called uh, Favourite Songs, and most of the songs in that are theatre songs. Um, we can tell that because when you look at the music, although it's laid out for voice and keyboard, there are cues for orchestral instruments, so we know that it was written for the theatre originally. So while he was working with them, Shield would have learned to compose songs for the theatre, dances for, for balls and assemblies, he probably also performed in concerts of orchestral music and oratorios. There were quite a few concert series at the time in Newcastle, uh, Durham, York and other places. He also was associated with the composer Charles Avison and his sons performing in concert series uh, for them and with the York theatre manager Tate Wilkinson. So he was moving in, in circles with the, the best performers and composers at the time in the area. And at that point, it was quite common for actors and musicians who were based in London to travel to the north during the summer and perform up here. So S.H.I.E.L.D. got to meet uh, those London-based musicians. Um, some of them invited him to then take on some work in London. And originally, he did that on a, a seasonal basis and moved there permanently around about 1778. The late Archdeacon of Northumberland, Dr. Sharp, held residence in Durham at an early period of my life and honoured me with an invitation to his weekly performances of sacred music. This worthy dignitary of our church also desired me to be the bearer of a letter to his brother, William Sharp, the late eminent surgeon, which proved a passport to his excellent concerts in the Old Jewry, where, at the first performance of the season in 1780, I had the honour of being an auditor only, but at each succeeding concert I experienced the advantageous pleasure of accompanying all the instrumental performers of the first class then residing in London. So what was it that he was doing in London? Uh, so he played in several theatre orchestras uh, for the Italian opera and, and other places. He also began composing 
complete musical works for several theatres, the Haymarket, Drury Lane, Covent Garden. His most successful season really was 1782-3, to so he had two pieces that season, Rosina and The Poor Soldier, both at Covent Garden Theatre Royal, which were really popular and established his reputation. They carried on being his most popular works throughout the rest of his career. So he was then engaged as kind of permanent house composer for that theatre by Thomas Harris, the manager, and stayed there for the next 14 years. Then after leaving Covent Garden, he carried on composing songs and chamber music and uh, performing in some prestigious concert series in London. Uh, Later in life, he published two treatises on music and composition. Introduction to Harmony came out in 1800, Rudiments of Thorough Bass in 1815. And then in 1817, he was appointed Master of the King's Music. So what did his role as Master of the King's Music entail? Not a lot, actually, (laughs) by this point. So traditionally, the Master of the King's Music would have directed a kind of small private orchestra that served the royal household. And Shields had been a member of that orchestra since 1787. And the the Master of the Music would also compose music for court odes, um, which were written by the Poet Laureate and performed at New Year and on royal birthdays. But they fell out of use completely by 1820, and by the time Shield was appointed were not as important as they had been. The post was really given as a kind of recognition and, and reward for his previous achievements rather than as a kind of an active role. But that in itself, I think tells us something about how highly he was regarded at that time that he was kind of rewarded with that position. So this lad who was baptised here at St Mary's in Wickham may have been buried in Westminster Abbey, but you resist the characterisation of him as a Geordie Dick Whittington, don't you? Yeah, I think um, he, he definitely is an exceptional person. He had an extraordinary life. But I think sometimes when we focus on an individual achieving success against the odds while that is inspiring we can be in danger of of downplaying the the context and the people in the communities and the the cultural uh, structures that actually enabled their success so although it's true that Shield was exceptionally talented and he did have some challenges early in life to overcome he himself actually made an effort to debunk a myth that sprang up during his lifetime that he was entirely self-taught and he corrected the record and made sure people knew that actually his father this Tyneside singing teacher was um, was responsible for his musical training and he also he he learned on the job really by performing in the northeast he was learning from colleagues and, and people he worked for and he first performed a lot of the repertoire that influenced his own compositions while he was working in the northeast so although there were definitely more consistent and lucrative opportunities for him in London. He got a really good start here, and that kind of really launched his career. I know you've analysed the subscription list in Shields' favourite songs to work out northeastern networks to which he belonged, haven't you? Yeah. Uh, so the subscribers list is really interesting. It's got about 300 names on it, but the, the level of detail in each entry varies. So sometimes you only get a Mr so-and-so. Sometimes you get the full name, their occupation and a location, which is really useful. So I basically cross-referenced the information in that list with lots of different local contemporary records, so trade directories, apprenticeship records, electoral poll books, petitions, Masonic Lodge registers, tax returns, maps, military and naval registers, newspapers, playbills, all kinds of things. And there are also lots of databases that other researchers have compiled of particular groups like clergymen or people who went to Oxford and Cambridge, kind of notable 
historical figures, people who subscribe to music publications, and there are several directories of theatrical professionals as well. So by cross-referencing all of those, um, I was able to identify quite a few people, or at least be reasonably certain it was it was that person. And I could then look at parish registers to find out more detail about their, their age and occupation and family relationships. A lot of the subscribers who didn't have a location next to them actually turned out to be Shields' theatrical colleagues, who of course, like him, were itinerant, they were moving between different places. Other subscribers were obviously concentrated around the towns that the Bates Theatre Company regularly toured to. There were a few subscribers who belonged to the sort of local nobility and gentry who had country estates around about, but more typically they would be shipbuilders, merchants, craftsmen, doctors, lawyers, publicans, and their wives and daughters as well. So far from being a place of cultural darkness, the region provided a market for musicians and music teachers to serve. Yeah, so I think other researchers have already looked at the sort of concert and theatre life of the region and obviously this podcast series is also helping to showcase some important figures locally. We know that it's it's just not true that the North was a kind of cultural desert. In fact, there were lots of high-profile musical performers who toured here. There were some really accomplished local musicians and strong networks of amateur musicians and music lovers who were the people going to plays and concerts or buying sheet music and learning to play instruments as a hobby. And in fact, of course, it was many of those people were employed in or, or benefited from, derived their wealth from the heavy industry in the area. So that was really kind of financing all the cultural activity. In his essays, Shield uses the term national airs for melodies that would later be called folk tunes. So you argue that these have tended to be downplayed in the past, but you think they deserve to be taken seriously, don't you? Shield himself really made that argument very effectively, um, particularly in his treatises where he, he treats traditional melodies with the same kind of seriousness and, and care as compositions by famous musicians like Mozart, Haydn, Purcell and Bach. He really kind of resisted the view that traditional music was in any way inferior just because it was transmitted orally rather than written down and because it had a different kind of harmonic dialect or, or instrumental techniques compared with formal classical music. He obviously had a, a really deep understanding of, of both genres and he drew on and combined elements of both in his own compositions. Shields himself, I think, was, was keen to champion British traditional music and composed music. And many of his stage works do have patriotic themes that reflect the global politics that was happening at that time. But he, he never really set out to create a body of national song, and he certainly didn't reject international influences. So within his works, he used traditional tunes from France, Italy, Austria, Switzerland, um, Russia, even Canada. So he was very open to all of these different cultures. 
So this cosmopolitanism makes him an Enlightenment figure. Yeah, I guess you could say that. Shield made it clear that his own regional musical heritage was very important to him and his sense of identity as a composer, but he was also very interested in traditional music from other cultures as well. How did a professional composer's approach to traditional music differ from that of contemporary philosophers and theorists? As, as you might expect, it was a lot more practical. Um, Enlightenment philosophies of music tended to view traditional melodies as representing a kind of primitive pastoral form of human creativity and that was prized for its emotive um, purity and, and naturalness um, but at the same time it was it was somewhat despised for being rough or wild or or coarse um, in in the sentiment or in the execution so a, a lot of published collections of traditional songs, um, they were obviously aimed at people who, who could afford to buy them, so at polite society, and that meant that dialect lyrics would often be cleaned up um, or, some, or they would be replaced by new poetry with a lot of classical references. And melodies might be altered or they'd be given accompaniments that demonstrated advanced piano playing techniques or um, formal kind of part writing conventions. So lots of composers at this period published arrangements of traditional tunes and that included famous composers like Haydn and Beethoven and less well-known British contemporaries of Shield. And those arrangements would be designed for upper-middle-class people to sing and play at home on instruments like the piano, the harp, the flute or the guitar. And some were also used in the theatre. I think what's different about Shield is, although he also adapted traditional tunes for those purposes, his arrangements are quite distinctive because they were really shaped by his first-hand practical experience of traditional melodies being played on traditional instruments. So you mean by his experience here in, in the Gateshead area? Yeah. So he, he writes in his treatise about tunes that he learned in infancy and he mentions uh, them being played on the Northumbrian pipes and there would be a, a duo of fiddle and cello that would accompany traditional dancing. During my infancy, I was taught to play and sing the following airs, which were then called border tunes. And as many subscribers honour their native counties, Durham, Westmoreland and Northumberland, for their gratification and to augment the collector's stock of printed rarities, these hitherto neglected flights of fancy may prove conspicuous figures in the group of national melodies. So putting this in a northern context, by not labelling these tunes as English, but insisting on classifying them as border, you argue that Shield tacitly acknowledged that a long history of cultural difference and independence, even resistance, characterised northern regions of England. Yeah, so in, in trying to understand that label and why he would have used it, I, I did a lot of reading around the history of the Anglo-Scottish border and, and what perceptions of it were during Shield's lifetime and in, in the decades before. And I, I'd say it would be impossible, really, for him to have grown up in this area without an awareness of, of the legacy of the border. The landscapes and, and buildings of the whole area still have kind of traces of, of and reminders of cross-border raids and Anglo-Scottish conflict. And of course, 250 years ago, those signs were much more visible and present. The, the two Jacobite uprisings that took place in 1715 and 1745 
had divided local families and communities within living memory when Shield was born. Um, and there were still discriminatory political and industrial practices like banning Scots from trade guilds were still happening uh, in Newcastle during his lifetime. On the other hand, there were also many Scottish uh, fiddle players, for example, living in Newcastle who Shield would have known. And despite the kind of history of conflict, there were always cultural and social and economic ties that actually united the people living close to the border on either side. And they tended to prioritise local needs and concerns over national allegiances, often because it was felt that the rulers in Edinburgh or in London didn't really understand uh, the, the local way of life or protect their interests. And it's, it's clear from the writings of Shields' contemporaries that there was a considerable body of stories and songs that kept the exploits of the historical borderers alive in, in folk memory and were a real source of local pride and identity. Do you think that suggests that he thought, in comparison to those of Celtic nations that were being so avidly collected in the period, his own regional heritage was being overlooked? Yeah, I think that's possible. As you say, there were many, many collections of Scottish tunes particularly were published throughout the 18th century and Irish and Welsh increasingly so towards the end of the century. He, he very clearly locates those tunes in the, the time and place of his childhood and he mentions that they'll be familiar to readers in the northern counties. So he, he clearly valued this musical heritage but he also wanted to make the music accessible to the kind of people who would be expected to buy his treatise, so middle-class music lovers who wanted to develop their, their knowledge of music. So the borders were no wasteland? Yeah, that's true. So there, there were lots of people of all kinds crossing the border. We know that um, Scots came down to Newcastle to work as miners or keelmen, and there were obviously musicians travelling back and forth as well. So Shields' arrangements of tunes like the keel row, uh, Ganter the Kai, the Black and the Grey, they demonstrate his familiarity with songs, dances and instrumental practices that were used by musicians on both sides of the border. And although as far as we know, he didn't cross the border himself, we've already mentioned Scottish fiddlers in Newcastle and he certainly interacted with Northumbrian pipers, local dance tune composers and also musicians from outside the area who kind of integrated into this musical landscape. This natural, simple air is a universal favourite and performed by the Duke of Northumberland's piper in a characteristic manner which notation cannot well describe. The Dukes of Northumberland retained a piper but also seemed to have employed other musicians for house parties and concerts and, and things as well. So he was involved in, in all of that activity. So what kind of popular events would he have been um, witnessing then? Shields treatises include a, a Tyneside fiddle tune with variations uh, called the Running Fitter. And he describes that as being a kind of audition piece for anyone who aspired to play for dancing at the hoppings. A hopping? is an annual festivity peculiar to the northern parts of England at which relatives and friends mingle in the merry dance and the whole scene is a gratifying picture of active content. So it's reasonable to assume that he knew this because he originally learned the tune for that purpose, to play for, for the village dance. A niche execution of The Running Fitter has long been considered the necessary attainment by the preferred hopping musicians. 
and his accompaniments for other tunes also share some rhythmic, decorative and technical features with the variations in fiddle manuscripts from around the same time. And that suggests to me that he was incorporating aspects of performance practice that he remembered from hearing other fiddlers play as he was growing up. So you argue that by reshaping a traditional melody and creating new variations to display his skill, he wasn't hijacking a labouring tradition that didn't belong to him, but rather was following in the footsteps of fiddlers from his own community and extending their legacy. Having grown up with this music, Shield certainly didn't view people who played on traditional instruments as a kind of primitive other, which was how they would be represented by philosophers. He knew them as his relatives, as friends, neighbours and fellow professional musicians. So whereas composers who didn't share that background would have tried to kind of force traditional tunes into classical harmonic shapes that weren't really suited to them, Shield was much more likely to follow traditional practice. He often used a drone, so the very simplest form of accompaniment where there's just one chord or one note that harmonises a whole phrase or tune. But he then did interesting things with the drone by dispersing the repeated pitch across rhythm patterns or across instrumental textures in, in interesting ways. When we look at traditional melodies, it's important to remember that they evolved over time um, and, and that's a, an ongoing process. So any notated version that we have, whether it's in print or manuscript, is a kind of snapshot of someone's oral experience in a particular place and time. So it might capture a memory of, of one performance or a, a, be a compromise between several remembered versions or an adaptation to suit a particular agenda or resources or preferences that an individual or a group had. Increasingly, as I've looked at examples of this, you can see the social reach of that music. So it was being played and sung by agricultural and industrial labourers who didn't have any formal musical training, but then it was also being performed by professional musicians who were making a living from that. And in, in parts of Britain, those professionals would include fiddlers and pipers who were working primarily by oral means, but then also musicians like Shield and uh, James Oswald, Charles McLean, William McGibbon, who were all Scottish fiddlers, uh, the Irish harper, Turla for Carolyn, um, who all were kind of steeped in that traditional music, but they also were familiar with notation and classical composition. So they brought the two things together um, and they brought those traditional tunes to middle and upper class communities. So this interest in local music must have helped him develop his relationship with Joseph Ritson, who famously collected northern tunes. Yeah, so Shield definitely helped Ritson with some of the, uh, the music for those collections. And Ritson said that Shield had kind of a natural ear for being able to tell whether the melody was the traditional one that had been handed down or whether it had been kind of altered or adapted by someone. Dear Ritson, I feel very differently from many of my brother professors, for although practice must improve my harmonical knowledge, it does not lessen the value of a simple national melody, which I hope will ever be admired by every sensible mind. It's sometimes been suggested that Shield's interest in traditional music was sparked by Ritson, but in, I think it's a lot more likely it was actually the other way around, um, because Shield had that lifelong knowledge of the tunes, and, and Ritson became interested in 
the melodies, but also the text and how the how the dialect and um, poetry had been handed down. And they met for the first time in Stockton. Probably. Uh, that was one of the stops on the Bates Company's tour and Ritson was training as a solicitor at that time in Stockton. So yeah, he would have frequented the theatre and got to know people like Cunningham also and Shield. Um, and they seem to have kept in touch. Ritson later moved to London and they also corresponded by letter. We don't know how often they met or how much they talked, but it, it seems they must have discussed things that Ritson was learning through his research as well. So he did a lot of research on uh, Robin Hood, the Robin Hood legend, um, whether Robin was really a historical figure and, and the kind of ballads and myths associated with that. And Shield later composed music for a production based on the Robin Hood story. And it seems likely that they would have talked about that material. And they certainly were close, weren't they? Because they went on a walking tour to Paris together. Yeah, so Shield took a sabbatical from his work at Covent Garden in 1790 to 91. Um, and they, yeah, travelled across the Channel together uh, through France and to Paris. Shield said he didn't speak any French, so whereas Ritson obviously did. So Ritson would have acted as his kind of interpreter in Paris at that point. Uh, Shield then continued on uh, to Italy, where he wanted to study singing um, the Italian uh, vocal techniques. So as so much of Shield's work was based on folk tunes, do you think that the choice of Scots, Northumbrian and Irish tunes helped to unite the kingdom during this period? Do they um, help to generate a sense of collective British identity? There were certainly people writing at the time who, who had that kind of cultural unifying project in view. And some musicians and playwrights contributed to that quite actively. People like Daniel Defoe and uh, Tobias Smollett. But at the same time, we, there's definitely a, a kind of resistance to that cultural homogenization. So people like Shield were concerned that the distinctive musical traditions of different regions of Britain might be subsumed or displaced if there was this one kind of dominant uh, cultural heritage being uh, privileged, I suppose. And so some people would then look to collect and classify and, and publish as many traditional tunes as possible so that that diverse cultural heritage wouldn't be lost. But because Britain was really at war with quite a number of European nations or, or competing for colonial territories with them throughout that period, there was also a sense of, of some people wanting to reject continental cultural influences. So British people often thought that music from France and Italy, for example, was excessively florid, or they viewed it with suspicion because those countries had Republican or, or Roman Catholic uh, associations. So there, there was a conflicting mix, really, of, of attitudes. You've also argued that popular songs aren't just catchy tunes, um, but are witnesses to moments in history. So can you give us some examples of, of these kind of comments on, on contemporary experiences? I guess the obvious one within Shield's work would be his use of the French revolutionary anthem A Saira um, in a, a stage play that um, aimed to represent 
events in Paris in the early stages of the French Revolution. So that was a song that had very clear political resonances for people at the time. But there are also more subtle examples. So in the early 1780s, there was a, a key general election. And one of the, the people who was elected as a, an MP for Newcastle was Andrew Robinson Stoney Bowes, who married the Countess of Strathmore, who owned the Gibside estate not far from here. And he was a, an Irish soldier and essentially an adventurer who really married her for her money and to gain political influence. And there's a, a song in The Poor Soldier that references where this Captain Robinson Stoney originally got himself in the good graces of the Countess of Strathmore by pretending to be wounded in a duel. So as we listen to it now, we would just think of these as humorous, satirical, funny plays uh, with with comic songs. But actually, at the time, people would have recognised that there was some quite pointed political commentary being included there. Of course, many people, including probably S.H.I.E.L.D. at that point, didn't have the vote. But theatre was one of the ways that they could comment on what was going on in politics. And A Poor Soldier by John O'Keefe, who yes. um, S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, collaborated with for many years. Yes, yeah. He himself was also Irish, had been an actor in Dublin and then moved to London and, and wrote a number of lots of dramas, mostly comedies. He certainly uses satire to, to give voice to kind of minority perspectives and to send up uh, some of the, the ruling uh, figures of the time. And he also was influential in helping S.H.I.E.L.D. to develop the, the style incorporating national airs into theatre music. So he suggested a number of the Irish tunes that S.H.I.E.L.D. used in The Poor Soldier. Um, they did a, a later collaboration called The Highland Reel, which uses a lot of Scottish airs and, and seems influenced by piping traditions in, in particular, which, again, S.H.I.E.L.D. knew about from growing up in this area. So I think it's, it's quite likely they discussed traditional music in, in the process of creating those works. So you've mentioned that S.H.I.E.L.D. was master of the King's music, but he also associated with well-known progressive thinkers and activists, as well as establishment figures, including the royal family. What are your conclusions about his politics? It's quite difficult to reach conclusions because he didn't leave us a helpful diary or letters where he expressed his political beliefs. So we can't be certain what his opinions were or whether they changed during his lifetime. I guess as, as background, it's, it's helpful to remember that in the 18th century, the vast majority of people didn't have the vote. Um, not only women, but also most working men couldn't vote. And for those who did have the vote, the polls were public, so everyone knew who you'd voted for, and that meant that people could be pressured to support particular candidates. There's no record that I've found of S.H.I.E.L.D. actually casting a vote in a general election. When he was growing up here in the Northeast, he almost certainly didn't qualify to vote because you had to own property um, or be a member of a trade guild in order to do that. And he, he wasn't, as far as we know, neither of those things. Once he was established in London, he could have voted, but he seems to have abstained. And that might well be because he was under pressure from his theatrical employers or because he needed to avoid offending royal patrons by, by backing the wrong candidate. What we also know, though, is that he was probably exposed to progressive thinking from early in his life. There was an informal culture of, of sharing and discussing political literature in taverns in Newcastle, some of which were 
frequented by theatrical performers. So he quite likely absorbed those ideas early on. And then in London, he associated with authors and activists, including Ritson, who we've already mentioned, um, but also William Godwin, Thomas Holcroft, uh, John Thelwall. So given his own social background and, and the fact he obviously had quite an inquiring mind, it seems very likely that S.H.I.E.L.D. would have endorsed a lot of the aims of these kind of progressive thinkers. So things like educating and enfranchising workers and putting an end to corruption and, and nepotism in government. It seems likely he would have been in favour of, of those things. Yet, as you've, as you've said, he also continued to work for the royal family. The tone of my viola, commonly called a stainer tenor, having been noticed at the concerts of ancient music by England's late revered sovereign, George III, as well as by its present discriminating beneficent monarch, George IV, I give and bequeath the aforementioned favourite musical instrument to his most sacred and glorious majesty. He appears to have genuinely enjoyed sharing music with them and, and valued their appreciation of his performances, so it's perhaps less likely that he ever really fully embraced the Republican ideas that some of his friends had. And you mentioned the playwright and novelist Thomas Holcroft, but he's someone else that uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. met when Holcroft was working as a strolling player for the Durham Company. Yeah, that's right. So um, Holcroft's memoir is one of the, the main sources that confirm S.H.I.E.L.D. definitely worked with that company. And he describes them walking between engagements in Durham and Stockton, reciting poetry to each other. So they certainly would have had lots of time while on the road to discuss ideas and political literature as well, probably. And they did continue to work together in London to some extent. Holcroft wrote a number of plays that S.H.I.E.L.D. provided music for. Although Holcroft was very open in his support for the French Revolution, and that seems to have damaged his image with critics in London. Possibly S.H.I.E.L.D. wasn't able to work with him as much as they would have liked. And Holcroft was a fiddle player, I think, as well, so they must have had an... Yes, a, a, yeah, so Holcroft learned to play the fiddle as a young man, and in William Godwin's diary there are some occasions when a number of musicians, including S.H.I.E.L.D. and Holcroft, gathered together at Godwin's house and um, played quartets, um, which is quite a nice, a nice image. <laughs> So what do you make of him quoting the, the French revolutionary anthem A Saïra? Yeah, so th this was controversial at the time, although it took place before the execution of the French royal family. So A Saïra had kind of edgy associations, I guess, at that point, but it wasn't actually treasonous to sing it or, or perform it. It's interesting that the theatrical censor at that time had to receive um, a, a script before a play could be performed, which he had to approve, and he was able to veto or, or alter it if he didn't like the material. But of course, that only contained the text, not the music. And instead of using the original French words, Shield and his collaborators substituted a very innocuous, innocent English text. So the censor had no idea there was anything controversial there until it was performed and, of course, the familiar tune was being played in the theatre. So I think there is the possibility that there was a political agenda there, but also it was very common for theatres to use, for example, French music for a piece set in France just as part of scene setting and to give authenticity and atmosphere um, so S.H.I.E.L.D. could certainly have argued if he was challenged that that was his only intention. I think probably it was a bit of both. 
So do you think his work comments on social class? Um, was he challenging the status quo by introducing this idea of the music of the people? Shield was definitely not the only 18th century composer who used traditional tunes in the theatre. Um, it, it made a lot of commercial sense to include tunes that people were already familiar with, tunes that were popular already um, across the social spectrum so that a, a play would have appeal. I think what's interesting about Shield is that he integrated and adapted traditional tunes with a lot more sensitivity to their original context and character, but he also merges them with classical musical elements in a very effective way. And I think that challenges the sense of there being rigid class boundaries and particular genres or styles of music being associated with particular classes. And that really reflects the way that professional musicians actually moved across and between social classes a good deal in the course of their work. So when they went to perform at the houses of, of royalty or gentry, on the one hand, their, their expertise and their creativity was valued and, and celebrated, but on the other hand, their social status was still kind of equivalent to the servants rather than the guests in, in those houses. In his theatre works, I guess we always have to remember that S.H.I.E.L.D. was setting somebody else's words, so the words that characters speak not necessarily um, are reflective of his opinions. What's interesting about Shields' works particularly is that he doesn't use musical style to reinforce class stereotypes in a crude way. So both his upper and lower class characters sing a mixture of pieces. Some of them are modelled on traditional airs, some of them composed in a classical style. And that really relates more to the abilities of the original singers than to any kind of class stereotype. And sometimes the musical features that are introduced complicate the text. So there's an example in Oh My, which is a, about one of the voyages of Captain Cook and, and references a, a real person from Tahiti who travelled to Britain and was quite celebrated in society at that time. And there's a song sung by a traveller from Tahiti which describes his experience of, of racism essentially in Britain and, and on one level it's quite uncomfortable to read the text because it seems definitely racist and kind of poking fun at this outsider. On the other hand, the melody that Shield set it to is a traditional Scottish and border song that he would have known very well throughout his life. So in a way he's almost, through using that tune, identifying with the outsider and bringing sympathy and relatability to that character. So, yeah, there is potential for the music both to reinforce and to undercut the text, which I think is very interesting. So does William Shield belong in the biographical? Yes, definitely. What I personally take from Shield's work is that music really is essential to the lives of all kinds of people everywhere, not just for entertainment, although that it has value in itself, but also for community and connection. The music that we enjoy helps us understand who we are. It shows us how the past has shaped us and it also gives us opportunities to relate to and, and share with people who are different from ourselves. And I think it's, it's really vital that we maintain and promote those possibilities. So that means making music of all kinds available to everyone through education, in the wider community as well. Um, it also means not assuming that certain kinds of music are only relevant or valuable to certain groups or in certain environments. 
Um, it means ensuring that budding musicians can really benefit from excellent training and opportunities and experience as William Shield did. But of course, he had musical parents and he had wealthy and influential patrons. So we need to make sure that even if people don't have that, they still get those opportunities. And I think it, it means facilitating cultural exchange across national or political or class boundaries as well. So in, in our current society, unfortunately, um, a lot of those things are really under threat, but it's important to remember that we actually have much greater freedom than William Shield did um, to openly campaign for equality in educational opportunity and for cross-cultural understanding and collaboration. So I think we need to use that freedom. Thanks, Emily, for giving us a glimpse into your research into William Shield. As I can resign, get resign, get resign, get as I can resign, get I heard a lassie sing. We'll make the keel roll, the keel roll, the keel roll. We'll make the keel roll that me laddie's in. By separating into one biographicon, this peculiar class of lives, a philanthropic emulation would be excited. A debt of social gratitude would be discharged. A trophy to patriotism would be erected. And an instructive knowledge of the present state of nations and the gradual concatenation of intercourse would be diffused. Literature should rear altars to the missionaries of human civilization.